0: Our scripture for today comes from Romans chapter 6, and I'll be reading from the message, beginning in verse 12. That means you must not give sin a vote in the way you conduct your lives. Don't give it the time of day. Don't even run little errands that are connected with that old way of life. Throw yourselves wholeheartedly and full-time. Remember, you have been raised from the dead into God's way of doing things. Sin can't tell you how to live. After all, you're not living under that old tyranny any longer. You're living in the freedom of God. So, since we're out from under the old tyranny, does that mean we can live any old way we want? Since we're free in the freedom of God, can we do anything that comes to mind? Hardly. You know well enough from your own experience that there are some acts of so-called freedom that destroy freedom. Offer yourselves to sin, for instance, and it's your last free act. But offer yourselves to the ways of God, and the freedom never quits. All your lives you've let sin tell you what to do. But thank God you've started listening to a new master. One whose commands set you free to live openly in his freedom. I'm using this freedom language because it's easy to picture. You can readily recall, can't you, how at one time, the more you did just what you felt like doing, not caring about others, not caring about God, the worse your life became and the less freedom you had. And how much different is it now as you live in God's freedom, your lives healed and expansive in holiness. As long as you did what you felt like doing, ignoring God, you didn't have to bother with right thinking or right living or right anything, for that matter. But do you call that a free life? What did you get out of it? Nothing you're proud of now. Where did it get to you? A dead end. But now you've found that you don't have to listen to sin tell you what to do and have discovered the delight of listening to God telling you. What a surprise. A whole, healed, put-together life right now with more and more of life on the way. Work hard for sin your whole life and your pension is death. But God's gift is real life, eternal life. Delivered by Jesus, our Master. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, friends, I stand before you having survived a long and arduous adventure known as traveling with young children. Some of you are survivors as well and will agree that vacation with a two-year-old and a four-year-old is really just traveling without any of the comforts and routine on which you daily depend. So I grew up traveling quite a bit. I lived in Georgia. I grew up in Georgia, and our family traveled often to South Carolina, Ohio, and Missouri. And, you know, it was practically the Bronze Age because our cars were still made out of metal, but we did not have DVD players or cell phones or in-car entertainment systems. I had a pillow and a blanket. So now, in the era of plastic cars, we travel with a DVD player. Now, David and I publicly pride ourselves... On making fun of the use of DVD players in the car. But we secretly depend on the use of the DVD player in the car for our survival on long trips. So, the movie of this trip was The Lion King, which we watched or listened to no fewer than 1,000 times. It may have been slightly less than 1,000, but it was close. Now, I am curious um, how many of you have seen The Lion King. So if you've seen that movie, if you can raise your hand, let me know. Okay, so we're doing all right. That's good. Okay. So The Lion King is one of those movies that clergy people like me tend to geek out about because there are so many rich spiritual themes going on in the movie. Now, if you haven't seen the movie, number one, I apologize, and number two, I am sure you're going to leave here today, and you're going to go watch it, because it's that good. So Simba is a lion cub prince, and after a series of unfortunate events, he runs and hides in the jungle from his family and from his pride, because he's ashamed of his past. Eventually, his best friend, Nala, finds him in the jungle and tells him that he must return to save the other lions from Simba's evil uncle, Scar, who is destroying the pride and the land. Simba tells Nala that he is not coming back to Pride Rock to help. His way of thinking about it is that sometimes, Bad things happen, and there's nothing you can do about it. Don't worry. Hakuna Matata. Well, Nala argues with Simba, telling him that the pride desperately needs his help and that she knows he can do something about it. And then she says, Simba, what happened to you out here in the jungle? You are not the Simba I remember. There are two narratives or stories going on in Simba's life. The first story is that of his core identity. Loved, accepted, belonging. The one who plays a vital role in his community's well-being. The second story is started by Simba's uncle, Scar. Scar kills Simba's father. And then with great cunning makes Simba believe that he is responsible for his father's death. And if the community ever knew, he would be cast out. So rather than face the judgment and rejection promised by Scar, Simba runs away. He lives into the second story. The story of guilt, shame, alienation, self-hatred, self-deception, and the resulting self-centeredness that allows him to abandon the responsibility he has to his community. So when Nala asks Simba for help, what prevents him from going is not the sense that he cannot help, but the fact that he is imprisoned or enslaved by the second story started by his uncle Scar. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 6. Two stories, the story of sin and the story of righteousness. He writes to the Christians in Rome in the first century to help them differentiate between these two narratives that have great authority in their lives. One of the challenges in today's passage is that it uses a lot of churchy words that some of us are either not familiar with at all or we're so familiar with them that they have very little meaning anymore. We didn't hear as many of those words in the message translation, but if you read the NRSV, you see words like righteousness and sanctification, and then a word that we heard over and over again in the message translation as well, sin. So my goal today is for us to hit the refresh button on our understanding of these words. First, I want to talk about sin. And we will have to be brave together. Because it seems that American Christians have a difficult time talking about sin. We tend to go too far in either direction. Either we pretend that sin doesn't exist, and we don't talk about it at all. Or we obsess about sin And we only talk about sin, and we make ourselves authorities on sin, and we leave everything else out. The Apostle Paul had many enemies, and one of their tactics was to accuse Paul of being antinomian, which is a fancy way of calling Paul a radical liberal, I think. So Paul preached the good news of salvation by grace through faith. That was his gospel. Salvation by grace, not works, through faith, not piety or law. And as it should, this made Paul's critics extremely uncomfortable. It really upset their cultural apple cart. So they devised a strategy to discredit Paul by identifying him with these antinomians who were people that whatever the moral law or norm was, went against it. They believed they could get rid of the moral law. And so in order to slander Paul and discredit him, his critics tried to group him in with the antinomians. So his critics might have said, Well, what this guy Paul is trying to do is tell you that you can do whatever you want. In fact, you should sin as much as you can by Paul's logic, because then the grace he's talking about all the time will increase. So Paul responded to his critics in verse 1 of chapter 6 and in verse 15. By no means, Paul says, certainly not Of course, we should not go on sinning or living some kind of lawless lifestyle in order to make God's grace increase. Salvation by grace is not some cheap grace that requires nothing from us. You lived in that story once, Paul says, the story of sin. The story in which you had to sin more and more to satisfy your master. But you who have been baptized are now in Christ and your hearts are changed and you no longer live that way. There are two very important things I want to say about sin. The first thing, and remember we're being brave together, is that I hope we can all leave here today thinking about, praying about, and waking up to the pervasive reality of idolatry. And I'm not speaking only broadly about the culture in which we live, but also about idolatry's capacity to influence the way we do church and faith. The idolatry of money, the idolatry of comfort, the idolatry of certainty, the idolatry of sameness, the idolatry of power, the idolatry of busyness. We're not immune to these things, even in the church. And ultimately, all these forms of idolatry are related to this idolatry of the self. I'm not saying this out of a spirit of judgment. I'm saying it because I'm so deeply concerned about our numbness, to how much this idolatry influences the way that we understand ourselves, the way we understand our neighbors, and the way we practice faith together. And you know what's incredible to me? Is that the same, the very same thing, was true for the church in Rome in the first century. And was true even for our very first brothers and sisters in the book of Genesis. So part of the big picture of the book of Romans is that Paul is making the case that all people are sinners who fall short of the glory of God. Whether they are Jew or Gentile. Because remember the early church is trying to figure out whether people have to be Jewish in order to be a Christian. This was the greatest conflict of the early church. So Paul is helping them find common ground. And the first argument he makes, the very first one, is that first and foremost, they are all sinners. He knew how to encourage. The sin he discusses first, very first, and on which he builds the rest of his argument is idolatry. And this is very important for us to understand. Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. Because although they, the people, knew God, They did not glory in him as God or give thanks to him. And thinking they were wise, they fell into foolishness. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the likeness of the image of mortal humans. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of humans. The human condition is that we are wired for connection and covenant. But we exchange this reality for the worship of ourselves. And that's the beginning of the story of sin, thinking that we know better than God. It's the same thing in the story of the fall in Genesis chapter 3, when the serpent comes to Eve and says, Now, did God really say you would die if you disobeyed? Are you sure? And we know the end of the story, right? Adam and Eve disobey God. And we have this very same impulse to break our relationship with God by appointing ourselves Lord of our own lives. And so deeply ingrained in us, so pervasive is this idolatrous impulse that Paul uses the word slavery to describe it. Because it so completely possesses us. This leads me to the second very important thing I want to say about sin. Which is that most of us in our everyday doing our thing do not think we are sinners. Is true for me. We might think, yeah, I could grow some in this area or that area. But generally, I'm doing all right. I'm a pretty good person for the most part. I'm doing the best I can. In a minute, we'll talk about how this kind of apathy and almost dysphoria, which is so incredibly prevalent in the time in which we live, this apathy is so different and so foreign to the reality of conversion. But we'll get there in a minute. So, one of the reasons we do not think we are sinners is because, as evangelicals, we talk way too much about salvation in only one tense. Past tense. We've been saved. In our thinking, in our language, in what we teach our children, we put all of our eggs in that basket. But this is not the biblical understanding of sanctification or salvation. Paul, in his writings, refers to salvation in three tenses. We have been saved, are being saved, and will be saved. Salvation is not a one-and-done deal. Let's look at it this way. Jesus offers as primary evidence of one's salvation the practice of discipleship. The great commission of Jesus is to make disciples. Not simply baptize as many people as you can. Jesus calls us to make a lifelong commitment to following him, our teacher. Imitating his example and teaching others the art of living in his way. Salvation is not a one-time purchase of fire insurance. This is one of the most important things that we talk about in our discipleship series every year with children when we do Becoming Like Christ. Memorizing scripture, knowing the stories of the Bible, being a good person, going to church, tithing, praying, and doing charity work do not make us a Christian. Being a Christian is first and foremost a condition of the heart in which we are honest with God about our sinful nature. We repent and ask for God's forgiveness. We place our trust in God to lead our lives, and we commit to doing that over and over and over again for the rest of our lives. Simply because we became a Christian long ago does not mean that our sinful impulses and desires no longer exist We'll keep trying to be the Lord of our own lives. Christian disciples are those who make repentance a lifelong habit, day in and day out. In an interview she gave in 2011, Maya Angelou, who's one of my favorite poets, said, I'm trying to be a Christian. I'm always amazed when people walk up to me and say, I'm a Christian. I think, already? You already got it? I'm working at it. So when we become Christians, the story of sin doesn't just evaporate. We say yes to the story of righteousness and obedience over and over and over again. Now, righteousness is another churchy word that gives us trouble, too. The way we translate this Greek word is problematic because often it's interpreted in a legal sense. Justice, justness, or what is judicially acceptable. Which only adds to our tendency to relate with God contractually. And relating with God contractually is a highly problematic way of approaching our relationship with God. When the word righteousness is used in the Old Testament, and when it's used by Paul, it refers not to the language of law, but to the language of covenant and relationship. Righteousness refers to doing what you need to do in order to keep a covenant. It describes the quality of a relationship. So that which builds and upholds the relationship Is righteous. And that which erodes and destroys the relationship is unrighteous. When we become slaves to righteousness, and let me pause here and say there's a lot of speculation that the book of Romans, when it was first read, would have been read by a group that was predominantly slaves. And let me also say that in the time that Paul wrote, voluntary slavery was common because people were so poor that they would submit themselves to be the slave of a master so that they might have food and shelter. So this is a different way of talking about and thinking about slavery that Paul is sharing with the Romans. So when we become slaves to righteousness, when we submit ourselves to righteousness, we surrender ourselves to total, radical, exclusive, from the heart, obedience to this relationship with God. So this is why we don't go on sinning, right? This is why we don't live a lawless lifestyle doing whatever whatever we want. It's because our hearts no longer belong to just us. They belong to God, too, and to our relationship with God. Greg Boyd, who is a pastor and theologian, explains covenant this way. Covenant relationship is something that necessarily changes our lives. We no longer think in terms of ourselves, but are there for the other. We are giving ourselves to the other. We don't try to negotiate the terms of the agreement to see how much we can get out of it or how far we can bend the parameters before the relationship breaks. That's called negotiating a contract. Instead, we preserve and treasure the preciousness of the relationship, asking questions like, how can we get closer? How can we get obstacles out of the way? How do we grow? How do we serve each other more faithfully? So when we become slaves to righteousness, we're giving ourselves over to this covenant relationship with God. Now, you remember earlier when I talked about how sometimes we have this apathetic view of sin and this kind of skepticism about life transformation, right, that God can really change our lives. We have that narrative going on in our head that's kind of like bleh about the whole thing. Well, now maybe you can see the problem with that way of thinking. When we're slaves to righteousness, when we're in this covenant relationship with God, the presence of apathy and skepticism is problematic. These are not the markers of covenant relationship. And that's not to say that we won't experience apathy or skepticism in short seasons, but that's not the end of the story of righteousness. When we read the stories of God's people in the Bible, we see God acting again and again and again to restore or uphold the covenant, refusing to let us go, working to bring us into positive relationship with himself and with one another. In covenant relationship, there is always hope and meaning and purpose and being fully alive. Our deepest longings and desires are met through faithful relationship with God. So let's say someone were to ask you, which story is being written in your life? The story of sin, which is the one that leads to death, or the story of righteousness and obedience? which is the one that leads to real life? How would you answer that question? We talked earlier about Simba from The Lion King. After Simba came to believe that he was responsible for his father's death, he thought the easiest, most carefree way to live was to hide in the jungle and forget about the first part of his life. He could do whatever he wanted, Hakuna Matata. But with the help of the holy man, Rafiki, Simba comes to realize that the only story for him is the first one. The story in which he is loved accepted, and in which he is vital to his community's well-being. Knowing that he will never be free until he lives in that story, Simba goes back to Pride Rock and restores the balance that his uncle Scar tried to destroy. The same is true for us. We will not experience true freedom until we live covenant relationship with God that is the only place that our deepest longings and desires can be met because it's what we were wired for and this goes completely against our understanding of freedom which we think means getting to do whatever we want or be whoever we want because that's what our culture tells us freedom is But in the story we read in the Bible, true freedom is found in covenant relationship. It's found when we are bound together with God and our neighbors. Thanks be to God that it's not a relationship between equal parties, but that the love and mercy and faithfulness of God always go before us. Thanks be to God that we are not the editing directors of this story, but it is God's transforming power and love which hold the pen. And thanks be to God that we're not called to present ourselves as perfect do-gooders, moderately good people, or pious judges. We are called to present ourselves as those brought from death to life, those being made new again and again and again through Jesus' work on the cross. So may we give ourselves fully and completely to the story of righteousness, which is the story in which we find true freedom with God.